So we'll look at verse 4 today. But just so that we're reminded of what we've read in the past, I want to begin with the very first verse. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, as we assemble today, Lord, we do so in obedience to Your Word. Lord, trusting that You will honor what You have said in it. Lord, that by it we may be sanctified. Because in it lies the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. The one whom we have believed in. The one whom we hope in. The one whom we look forward to meeting face to face. As we would leave what is temporary behind and look to that which is eternal. It's our prayer this morning, Lord, that we would open your word and see the magnitude of of the implications of the eternal Jesus Christ with every word and with every line that we may be transformed by His works and by His power and His grace and by Your Spirit who dwells within us. And God, I pray that we would be enlightened to our sin and to a knowledge of who You are so that we may be granted by your good pleasure, repentance, and that we would find ourselves serving you and loving you as we should. God, this day, would you feed us from your word? Would you feed us from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 that we may proclaim as a byproduct of our nourishment the truths of Jesus Christ and the wonderful salvation that we have that was purchased by his blood? It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. So last week we closed by finishing the second half of verse 3. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. We see not only the gospel of Christ as it's been given to mankind by these words spoken of, but we also see the beauty of the transmission. The wonderful thing that that Christians oftentimes have great debates over, great arguments, great division is over the text of Scripture. And not just what it means, but some even would cause divisions over the different translations of the text. But as we study the Hebrews, we consider, in fact, the Tower of Babel, the languages, and then we see 
the implications of a gospel that is to be preached to every tribe, to every tongue, to every creature. And we may witness within this particular passage the beauty of the transmission of the gospel. Not that it comes at the eloquence of an English word or a particular translation. In fact, we often see that the quote-unquote error from translation to translation is the use of a synonym. But what we see here is the fact that God is able through man, His provision, His means by which the gospel will go forth, He's able to speak to every man, every ethnicity, every race, every culture through the word which is not derived from any particular language but which is that that is proceeding from the mouth of God. And so in it I want you to embrace the transmission of the gospel. That it doesn't come by the King James Version. doesn't come by the ESV or the NASB. But that the gospel is proclaimed and made effectual by the Holy Spirit of God as it testifies not the word itself, but the truth of the words. The truth of the one whom it is speaking about. And for that reason, when people come to us and say, well, we only use this version or this version... We can praise the Lord and say, you know what? The Word of God is so powerful that whatever version it might come in, the message of Christ is able to transform. And that we see that in Hebrews chapter 2. This is the beauty of its transmission. The spiritual prosperity of the gospel as it has been passed from one generation to the next generation to the next and to the next, from the very earliest of Jesus' disciples and to those who came before Jesus took on flesh. And even until now, we see the true spiritual prosperity of the message of the gospel, that the bride of Christ may be raised up, and that she may be sanctified, and that she may be changed by the power of the word. Not the structure and the direction of which the lines are written upon a page, but by the instruction and by the master whom has become flesh, whom himself is the very word. <clears throat> As we consider these things in the transmission from the very earliest followers of Christ until now the modern church, we have an assurance as defined in the text that the message of Jesus Christ is the only saving message. It's the only message concerning true salvation and it's the only message that can change and turn a man's wicked heart away from evil and towards God, towards Jesus himself. This is the message that is referred to in the previous verse as the message that is of such great salvation. A great salvation that is depicted as being one whom many will neglect. I said it this morning. 
we like to use the term share the gospel. The issue with that is that typically when we share something, it's that we share something that someone else also wants. Kids are taught to share their toys because someone else wants to play with them as well. Husbands and wives are taught to share their finances and to share their struggles so that the burden is not greater upon one, so that the the pleasure that is derived from those blessings that we have from the Lord is also shared because we want and we desire to share those things. But the message of the gospel is not really simply made to be shared. It's meant to be proclaimed because the truth is that no one wants to hear the gospel. No one who doesn't have Jesus Christ already. So in fact, if we want to be technically correct, we need to proclaim the gospel rather than to share it. And so this is my thought concerning salvation. If we may pause here for a minute, it's that many people will beg the question. They'll beg the question concerning salvation why the exclusivity of Christ and salvation? Why do we as Christians believe that? Why would God make Christ the exclusive means by which we must be saved if we're to be saved? Why only one way? Why can man not be saved by some other means according to Scripture? It's impossible. Why would God create such a narrow path that is impossible to find, as we're told? To which our answer must first and foremost be the glory and honor of God. But secondly, when this question arises as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, as evangelists, as apologists, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, our answer must be this. It must be a rebuttal with who art thou to question the Almighty God? We can appeal to no higher authority. And when someone asks, why does God do something the way that He does, or why does He command things to be done a certain way, our response must always be because He is the Almighty God. There is none who commands Him. Who are you to question? For you are His craftsmanship. You are the work of His hands. How dare anyone offer resistance to the Master and Creator of all things? Why Trouble the one whom you are made to serve. And you're made to serve he without question. For it is not necessary that you by your own works be saved. But it is necessary that Jesus Christ intervene on behalf of man. And that is the provision of God for salvation. Is it not crucial that something be done by God where man can only do more to increase his separation and his need for salvation? Certainly all of this is true. And furthermore, when we consider that there are not many ways to God, but that there are one, that that is faith in Jesus Christ, we consider that 
God the Father has declared Him the all-sufficient Lamb. And if that is true, if the statement that He is the all-fulfilling sacrifice is true, then by its very nature God cannot provide multiple means by which we must be saved, but only Jesus Christ. There must be exclusivity if He is the all-sufficient sacrifice, if He is the final Passover Lamb. If He is perfect and righteous, then there can be no other sacrifice. There is no need for any because any other means would be to say that Jesus alone is less than adequate. For one who is thirsty does not need many drinks offered. And one who is drowning doesn't need two life preservers. One who is hungry does not need a buffet But I would submit to you that the one who is dying in his sins and his trespasses needs only one, and that is Jesus Christ. The Lord our God is one. But as we said, the message of Christ has been transmitted. And according to Isaiah 55, verse 11, where it reads, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Twofold implication by Isaiah 55. First, that the word goes out from his mouth. The verbal word given to man is being received by the ears of one who is regenerate, it shall accomplish a certain purpose. The word shall be so applied that the blood of Christ in turn is also applied and that the sinner may be reconciled to God. And in order to do that, one must submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the word says that it shall succeed. That the law shall be stated and shall be proclaimed so that man sees his sin and the grace of God and Jesus' sacrificial crucifixion upon the cross. It too shall be received that salvation shall, shall be realized. But then we go back again to that word. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. The word that became flesh. Jesus Christ said, emptied himself, but at the resurrection, Christ returned to the being that he once was in his omniscience, his omnipresence. He didn't lay aside any longer the things that we seem to place such emphasis on as they are in fact the attributes of God but he came back full and Christ was full of joy he was full of life because he had in fact accomplished that purpose for which he was sent redemption salvation was accomplished so therefore we have a twofold word the verbal word of God that accomplished what it shall and it still does 
until the second return of Christ. And then even so, afterwards in eternity, the words that are written, written on the pages of these scriptures shall testify of the wonderful magnificence of the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And then that word that became flesh has gone and accomplished His purpose. It, it being He has succeeded in the thing in which He was sent. Father sending the Son. We know not only has it been transmitted, but according to the great mercy and graces of God, the message has been received. The message has been received whereby we have made in the image of God, we have been made anew. We're made new creatures in order that we may now discern the truths contained within this gospel. If it was a saving message when it was first given, then today it needs no alteration, it needs no improvement, for that is impossible, and it is still possible for the gospel of Jesus Christ in its current form and its unchanging form to remain both relevant and capable to save. That's what's being described in Hebrews chapter 2. The gospel of Jesus Christ remaining unchanged, unaltered, in its purest form. How can Christ place upon a human such infinite value? It's the question we ask. It's simply because these humans are his bride. And not just a mere bride, but a bride who carries with her eternal truths, able to set free slaves from their sin. Do you want to know why you're so valuable to Christ? Because you carry the message of Christ. You know, we see so much importance throughout the Old Testament upon ancestry. Those being descendants of Abraham or of David. The truth is that they're valuable. They're infinitely valuable because they testify of Jesus Christ. That is how come the price has been paid so willingly by Christ to ransom you from your sin, to pardon you from your guilt because you contain the message of Him. He's chosen through you to bring forth the message of his salvation. And not only that, really that's just a byproduct salvation. The truth is that the message we carry brings glory and honor to Christ, to God the Father, to our triune God. It's contained within this gospel. It's very simply the value behind every Christian is the master whom he serves. The messenger's value therefore does not lie within his own being, but instead his value can be realized by the worth of his message. And in that statement, the church must ask, what is our message? When you leave this building, what is your message? Christians carry an infinitely priceless and eternal message. The message containing the truth of our need for a great Savior. 
the truth of reconciliation and the answer to such a need. For this reason, we're left without any wonder, any consideration as to why verse 3 describes the testimony before us. And that in it we may have confidence so that we do not drift away. Where it says, how will we escape? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by those of us who heard. So in that we find ourselves this morning at verse 4. To study and to listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Where he says, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. A very important statement opening here. God testifying. If you ever wanted a a true testimony, if you ever wondered if one really exists, this here is the testimony of the one true living God, the only one who has ever spoken a testimony who has not lied, the one who is always truthful. And the text says that he testifies with those before him, with those men of the church. A historical truth. Not that man adds anything to the testimony of Christ, but the opposite is true. That man proclaims the truth and the saving work of Jesus Christ and in order that it is substantiated, God is involved. And God testifies with him. Not only is he involved, he's not just signing, saying this is what I've transmitted, giving his seal of approval. He's not just giving his authoritative accreditation with regards to what the forefathers' testimony was, but God himself has commissioned the relaying of this message. Man had no desire to speak of God, but the truth is that their hearts, and that our hearts this morning, are conformed to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And for that reason, now we may write, now we may testify, Now we may shout and proclaim the truths of the gospel. This is what it means when it says, with them. God testifying with them. Because before they wouldn't have testified if God not be with them. So we look at this and we consider the testimony of God with the testimony of men. Their desires, men, have changed in order that we may now preach righteousness. We we may now preach the message of forgiveness, the message of reconciliation, the message of righteousness and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the message of eternal life, where before we mocked this very same message. We mocked the God of the Bible. And the truth is that some may be here now who continue to mock and despise the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who may enjoy the distractions that keep them from hearing the true message of God. We all have done these things. 
And we like to say that God has saved us against our will. And to some degree, the human mind sees it that way. But the truth is that the gospel conforms our desires toward those things that bring glory and honor to God. He did, in fact, draw you against your will, but He saved you according to your will that He has changed and He has conformed. These things happen almost simultaneously that we receive the Spirit, we're made regenerate, and that we believe in Jesus Christ. And they're hard to comprehend. So when someone says, God doesn't save you against your will, we can answer, maybe you're right. He drove me. He draws me against my will. And He creates within me a clean heart that desires to do His work. And so now I, I, I can't but merely recollect the heart that sought to seek after my own desires, but now i given to the Lord and His work. And we ask ourselves, how do we stack up to these truths? Where does our heart lie? How much have we been conformed by the message? How much confirmation is yet to be done? Or do we think that we have arrived? Do we think there is no place for change and that we have every answer? The text supposes this valid statement, man is never satisfied. We couldn't just take God at His word, but instead our long-suffering God supplements the message of His Son by the use of signs and wonders and gifts and miraculous feats of supernatural power and wisdom. That's what it says. God testifying with them by both Signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. God is confirming the work, the transforming work of the power of the message of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And He does so because man is never satisfied. He never has enough proof. He never has enough evidence. This is demonstrated by the ministerial works of the apostles. They would go... And they would heal. And they would restore vision. Ability to walk, to hear. They would heal infirmities. And it wasn't for those who simply believed in Christ. Because that wasn't the truth. The truth is that God has done these very things for us. And we're not looking for new signs and wonders and miracles because the Bible says an evil and adulterous age seeketh after those things. But the truth is but because we have the testimony, because we have the historical documents proving that these things happen, God has enacted upon us those same graces whereby we didn't receive the truth of those miracles in the flesh, but we have received them in the text and we know that they're true. We haven't missed out on any signs and wonders. We haven't been left out from these things. But we have the account. And truly, if we love one another as we should, if we love our neighbor as ourselves, the miracle that was performed for the blind man in the Bible is just like the miracle that is performed for you today. 
The salvific work of Jesus Christ. The problem is that when people are following these false teachers and false prophets that claim to heal and everything else, they're selfish. God has already proven who He is. Christ has already proven what He has done upon the cross. And we have every account in Scripture. The miracle, and it was a miracle, that Paul, as he's made blind and he sees again, is not just a miracle of sight for Paul, but it's a miracle that we may see that which is unseen. We may see the truth of the power of Jesus Christ. Represents a spiritual blinding. But like I said, these are demonstrated by the ministerial works of the apostles. And John said in chapter 20, verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The miracle itself didn't bring about belief, but the record of the miracle testifies of the reality and the truth and the authenticity of the message of Jesus Christ and His power and His authority. By understanding these signs and these wonders and these gifts, we can turn corrupt, modern, professing Christianity on its head. We can preach against these things. These things weren't done for great people of faith. These weren't done so that the men of God may be known amongst his peers. Think about that. If you have enough faith, you'll be healed. Well, all that would prove if, if I had enough faith to be healed from an infirmity is that I'm just better than you. I'm more godly than you. That's all it's really saying if we believe it as it's presented uh, in modern Christianity. But this is a false gospel. This is garbage. Miracles weren't displayed simply because the poor people had physical needs, but that the reality is that God did these things so that the weak may believe in the Son of Man. You're the weak. I'm the weak. That I must read these to be reminded that Jesus is the Son of God and that He is the Messiah. And that believing we may have life in His name. Why? Because the best way to put it is because we can only have life. Whether it be in the present tense or whether it be life eternal. If it be by Jesus Christ. That's the simplest way that we can put it. That believing in Jesus Christ, we may live. And not live for ourselves, but live for Him both now and forever. This is the will of God. That by the working of His Holy Spirit, we may see these things that are unseen. 2 Corinthians 4.18 While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Praise be to God, I didn't see these miracles. I read about them. And I believe them. And believing that I have faith in Jesus Christ. 
Because the fact is that although many of these things were done, we know that they still turned from Christ. They still mocked Christ. He even said it, you only came because you were filled with the loaves. Seeing the miracle won't do anything for you. Being healed might temporarily turn your heart to praise, but it will be in vain if it not be rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. All of this done according to his own will. You may ask, what will is that? That's the will that Christ be exalted and that he be glorified above all. The very same thing that we saw in the first chapter of Hebrews. His will also to redeem mankind from his sin and from death and to redeem man by the hand of his word. The word from the fathers, the word that really proceeded from Jesus Christ, Christ both in the flesh and before he took on flesh as it was given by the prophets and by the angels. The word his right hand, his son, the Savior. Here revealed in the ministry also is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the revelation of the only begotten Son, the job of the Holy Spirit being to, it says, uh, that he testifies with them with the signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit gives gifts. What for? To testify. Of the truths of Jesus Christ. Doing all this until the return, the second coming. The Spirit described here as the third person of our triune God who is ministering currently to those who are being saved. The seal of the perseverance of the church belonging truly to Christ. And there we have expounded the immediate context of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4. The internal context in relation to Jesus Christ, but now we need to go back to the beginning of the verse. If all of this was done according to his own will, as it says at the end of the verse, then we must also notice that verse 4 when it says, God also testifying with them, was not simply to be taken as God's addendum to the spoken word and confirmed by men. But on the contrary, God was testifying through them. His plan from before the beginning, testifying through man. But rather I say the complete truth is that God also testifying with them means the same thing that it means in Matthew chapter 18 verse 20 where it says, For where two or three gather together in my name, there I am with them. In the context of church discipline, God is present even in the human testimony. Though the immediate context of verse 4 says that he testifies with them by the miracles and the signs and the wonders, the truth is that he testified with them in the fact that they spoke the words that came from his mouth to begin with. That our lips would even utter such words that are the words of eternal life that God there is testifying with us, by us, for us. 
The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The message of the gospel as it comes is a testimony that God is with us. That we are with Him. And that we will not follow another. Consider these truths as we answer the sin and the denial of the unbelieving world. It is written here, God testifying. He's testifying the word that was first spoken by him as Lord. And it was spoken to those before us in that we don't need a modern translation of Christianity. We don't need a modern spin. It doesn't need to evolve. But that we understand that God has testified from before the beginning that Christ is preeminent. Christ is premier. There is none above Him that He is to be exalted and that He alone can save. The truth of verse 4 is that God testifies by all of this because man is weak. Man is frail. And He does so. Think about this. God is not testifying so that your will may be done. So that you may decide to be saved. So that you may decide to follow Christ. But it says that all of these things are done according to His own will. It's not your will that you be saved, but it's His will that you be saved. We should remember that. So that we do not lift ourselves up with pride. So that we do not boast in our salvation as if it's something that we've done. But the truth is that Christ has done before uh, the beginning of the foundations of the world, He has begun a great work. God, the Father, begun a great work in Christ, wrought in Christ, purchased by Christ, according to His will that the message of the gospel be the one that saves. That the Savior, who is the preeminent one, who is the context, the full focus of, of the gospel that he alone be magnified and that all others be cast down. The miracles aren't the focus. The signs aren't the focus. But that God be glorified in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that man may recognize it and ascribe to him the proper glory and honor. In closing... Many of my sermons cause me to think of verses to hymns that we sing. If you were here for Sunday school, you'll know why I picked this one. I'll sing a, a portion of it again, or at least say it. It says, He lives, He lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. The hymn is so true. You ask me how I know Christ lives. It isn't because of the signs of the wonders of the miracles that I received. It's because he lives within my heart. Is that true for everyone here who professes to be a Christian? Do you know that Christ lives because he's changed your heart? Because he's testifying with you not against you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you once again, we uh, ask for your great mercy.
Lord, you say that we have not because we ask not. And what we stand in need of today is forgiveness. And we stand in need of knowledge of who you are. And Lord, with that knowledge, we ask that you would accompany it with a great measure of fear. The fear of death. The fear of judgment. The fear of the holy God in whom we say that we serve. For if we have not fear, Lord, we have no salvation. If we have no salvation, we have no Christ. If we have no Christ, we have no hope. Our prayer this morning is for those of us who would hear the gospel and already be Christians, that we would be continually transformed and sanctified. And for those who have yet to respond to the gospel, Lord, we pray that you would burden their hearts, that the words of Christ and that the penalty of sin would be so overbearing that they have no choice but to bend the knee and to confess that he is Lord. We pray that all these things be done in honor and in glory and exaltation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.